that I go through when I speak here is that the request for me to speak here often occurs months before the actual date. So I have to have the foresight to select a topic or to come up with the title of a talk that I think that I'll be interested in uh, in the future. And uh, ironically, uh, this talk, this topic, I couldn't have selected a better topic because it's right in front of my face. And what I mean by that is, is I've been, I've been doing this practice for a while, and one of the things I've discovered, not only in my personal development, but in the development of my clients, is that to, to grow and to develop, and to develop more insight into our lives, into our minds, into who we are, often is accompanied by what is called growing pains, or what I experience is growing pains. And so the title of my talk tonight is Growing Pains, um, Moving Beyond the Comfort Zone. And so maybe that's not so obvious, but hopefully by the end of tonight's talk it will be. It reminds me of, of the fact that when I was 14, I was in the eighth grade, and I, was ba I played basketball, and I played, I ran track, and I engaged in some of the other sports like football. But when I was 14, I was 4 foot 11 and weighed 88 pounds. <laughs> and uh, so you can imagine uh, the level of my anxiety uh, in terms of, of wanting to play the game of basketball when, when I was one of the smaller uh, folks in my class. Well, I remember that time very well, and I remember going out to the asphalt courts. I grew up in Boston, and we didn't have a lot of access to community centers like they have now. So we used to do a lot of our um, exploration of the game of basketball on the outdoor courts. And I can remember vividly going out there some summer mornings and grasping my heels because I was actually experiencing growing pains. It really hurt. And to me, on a physical level, that is, that is metaphoric of, of what happens on a mental and a spiritual and emotional level as well. And needless to say, by the time I was a senior in high school, I, had, I was 5'11 and weighed 150 pounds. So in four years, I, I grew a foot and gained 62 pounds, something like that. And I have to tell you, if I could have avoided the pain, I would have. But the pain was what I, was necessary for me to grow into the young man that I needed to grow into. And especially playing basketball, even by uh, today's standards, that's not very tall, but it's a lot taller than 4 foot 11. <laughs> and so as I reflect on my, on my development, on my life, and one of the reasons I, as part of this practice, we, we have this term called um, appropriate attention or wise reflection. And in part of that process, we reflect on our lives. We reflect on what, what we've done or what I've done that's been skillful. In other words, what I've done that actually created more peace, more um, ease, not only in my life but in the life of others. And we reflect on things that maybe we didn't do so well. So upon my reflection, especially this year, because 
On July 30th, I, I celebrated my 20th year of sobriety. So over the last 20 years, to say I've been in an accelerated learning phase would be an understatement. So it was very much like my physical process when I was in the eighth grade, that I've grown quite a bit. And there were times during that process where, where I experienced pain. And the reason I experienced pain is because I was moving beyond my comfort zone beyond what I was accustomed to, where I was accustomed to being. And so it's really important to acknowledge that, even though I'm happy for my growth, but there was a lot of pain there. So I don't want to talk a lot about my, my own experience, but it's probably helpful to say that I started my, my practice here in Cambridge. I actually lived in this center for six years, and I used to come here and and I noticed uh, there's, there's a lot of changes because there's not a lot of people here that I remember when I first came here 20 years ago or so. And I remember uh, being in, in um, well, actually in recovery, actually waking up one day and actually seeing my, my street for the first time and, and recognizing that I was working as a financial analyst in a, in a military complex type uh, environment. Uh, paramilitary, defense spending, uh, defense uh, building uh, type of uh, company that I worked for. And uh, as I started to become clear, once I started taking the substances, going to 12-step program, I got connected to, to this, this spiritual process, a process of connecting to something greater than myself, a process of of taking personal inventory, a process of taking responsibility for my decisions and actually getting myself into a place where I wasn't uh, addicted to the degree that the decisions were being made for me on some level. In other words, I had no control. So going from not having any control to having control, going to living in the fog to actually living on purpose and having to understand myself, my mind, that I was responsible for my happiness, that I made choices on some level, even though they, they were often unconscious, uh, to, I made choices that didn't take me to where I wanted to go. And so in my process, I ended up coming here and I ended up practicing Vipassana meditation. And I remember my teacher, Larry Rosenberg, at the time saying to me, George, you have to uh, let go of that title of being a recovering substance abuser. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with 12 steps, but if, if I were to go into a meeting and say, you know, I'm not really a recovering uh, alcoholic or whatever, drug addict, they would say I was in big-time denial because the, th the thinking has always been that you have to remember that you're an addict. You have to remember that you can't take a drink or a drug. And it was interesting and radical that Larry said to me, you got to let go of that, George, because that title, that thinking, that self-image is limiting. And it's keeping you in that frame of, of mind that, that is exactly what it says. You know, you're in recovering, you're an addict, you're an alcoholic, whatever. And he, he wasn't suggesting that I could go out and drink. He was suggesting that views and opinions uh, created suffering. That even the label, uh, even how I see myself has an impact on my behavior and how I think and how I interact. 
And so that was my first uh, real strong process of letting go because one of the things I understand about this process of moving uh, out of the comfort zone is that sometimes for a while there, that label was helpful for me and it helped me to stay clean and sober. And I suggest that as I look back on my life, there were other behavior patterns I had, which my, my main defense was taking care of everybody else so I wouldn't have to focus on me. And that's how I survived in, in, my, in my life. And so now, the very thing that helped me survive, people are asking me to let go of. And when I let go of that title of recovering alcoholic, I didn't know what to put there. <laughs> oh, I'm a, I'm a Vipassana yogi? Vipassana yogi? Or, you know, I'm for African American. Uh, I'm this, I'm that. And all of those titles don't quite cover everything. I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm an uncle. So, to me, it's, it's been a process of, of letting go, of understanding that my, the identities that I create by um, identifying so strongly with my experience are the very things that imprison me. And so, for me, that was the first case where I had to let go of that identity, and as a result of that, I was able to move beyond that. So, I'm still recovering, but I don't have to identify myself that way. My lifestyle is a lifestyle. Of course, if you're around here and you take the five precepts, one of them is not taking intoxicants. So it's very easy for me to make that, that jump. So that's a very obvious one. Now, some of the other ones that weren't so obvious was when I had been a financial analyst for 15, 16 years, and then when I couldn't do that anymore, uh, I would go and I talk to people and they say, they don't ask you, well, who are you or how you be? They ask you, what do you do? And so when I quit my job as a financial analyst, that was a very interesting time because how I related, I didn't know how to call myself. And then they say, well, what did you do today? And I say, well, I did some yoga, tai chi, I meditated, I you know, read some 12-step uh, spiritual literature, and then they say, oh, you didn't do anything, huh? And I realized, well, George, you don't tell them that. You just say, oh, I didn't do anything, and, and just, just move on, because they don't get it. So, so one of the things that became very obvious to me is that uh, part of this process of self-discovery has to do with expanding our consciousness, expanding our awareness, expanding um, our ways of being, and also uh, expanding our understanding of ourselves, of our mind particularly how my mind works, how I deal with, with the hindrances like anger, frustration, um, doubt, those sorts of things. So going through this process, I learned that, that each step I, I develop a certain expertise or I develop a certain way of being, and then a good teacher would take it or snatch it away from me and say, okay, got to go beyond that. Uh, I remember when I was working in that job, uh, I spent a lot of time just trying to be with it, being mindful of my feelings, being mindful of the fact that, because one of the things that happened when I, when I started looking inside was it became clear to me what I wanted and what I didn't want. And sometimes that clarity was what I didn't want first before I knew what I wanted. And I remember when, when I, I went back to graduate school after 13 years 
after I graduated from college, and when I don't even know how I got through college because I spent most of my time in fantasy, so I don't know how I survived, but I did. But once I started going to school, I started going to school for psychology and doing the things that I really wanted to do. And I remember taking one course, uh, it was on depression, and it was taught by a nurse practitioner. And I remember she said to me, uh, be careful, a little knowledge is dangerous. And I took offense to what she said. Because I was saying, she doesn't know me. How is she going to tell me how I'm going to feel? <laughs> and what actually happened was uh, she was right. Because even though we say we want to be aware, even though I said I want to be aware, there's some stuff that I don't want to see. It's painful. And on some level, uh, there's a knowing that if I change, if I open to this new experience, then my life is going to change. And so that means maybe the relationships I have, maybe the things that I, I'm ignorant about now I'm able to do, I won't be able to do when I get some more understanding, when I get more clarity. And so for me, as I reflect on my life going through, going from that job and, and uh, spending two years of not working, living here, and, and doing a lot of intensive retreats, uh, and then getting clear about what I wanted to do, and when I realized I wanted to, to teach the Dhamma uh, in, in ordinary circumstances, I wanted to teach it in a place like this, but really where people live, I ended up, um, after the three-month course, there was a, a notice on the board saying they wanted somebody to go into prisons and teach substance abusers how to meditate and, yoga, and do yoga. So it was made for me. So what I found on this process, that even though I let go of, once I let go of that job, that opened me up. To something else. So it's the, the thing that I, that I remember people saying to me, one door closes, another one opens. And the fear, the discomfort a lot of times has to do with being in the hallway in between the doors <laughs> and not knowing. They call that the neutral zone uh, in a book called Transitions. They talk about being in that neutral zone and it's chaotic and there's a lot of energy there. And it's, it's like, it reminds me of that saying that Curly of the three students used to say all the time, I'm going nowhere fast. <laughs> and uh, it's like spinning your wheels, nothing's happening, you don't feel like doing anything. You, you, it's helpful in this practice because those are times when I feel like I need to be alone and I need to listen deeply to what my heart's telling me or what, you know, trying to find out what the next thing is. But that means being real comfortable with, with uh, uncertainty, with ambiguity, with not knowing. And that's painful. And to me, this process is painful. It can be painful because of, of the fact that we go through this, these stages of not knowing. So I've been through a lot of what I call freaking growth experiences in my 20 years. And one of the things that I notice about, about this, and, and I'll give you an example of, of how painful it is or how unsettling it can be to be in a new experience and being used to being in a comfort zone where you know where everything is, and then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're pushed out beyond that, and you don't know where everything is, and everything is, is like, it's like trying to learn how to drive a car all over again. When I first learned how to drive, it took all my energy just to use my feet on the pedal and hold that wheel. And then at some point, by and by, as I developed more complexity with being able to drive, all of a sudden you can have conversation, you can look out the window, you can do all kinds of things when you're driving. Not that I would recommend that, but we develop that skill set. And so when we learn a new 
task or a new skill or we get into a new situation, we go through what they call a learning curve. And in that learning curve, there's four stages. The first stage is you don't know you don't know. And that's, pretty a, that, that's kind of a nice one because if you don't know you don't know, there's nothing to get upset about. <laughs> but the second stage is problematic because that's the stage where you know you don't know. And the interesting thing is, and this is where the practice comes in, is being able to apply the right effort, persistence, patience. And obviously, mindfulness is, is needed there so that you can see, okay, uh, you know, all I have to do is just do this. Just like sitting sometimes, all I have to do is just remember to come back to the breath and just be with the breath wherever it is. I don't have to make it real complicated, but if I do the, use the right effort and have enough patience, by and by it will come. And so then you get to the point where, where you know you know. And then you get to the, the final stage, which is you don't know you know. So it's automatic. It's an instinct. It's like driving. All of a sudden, it's an instinct. But that process sounds uh, convenient. It sounds logical. But there's no telling how long you're going to be in each one of those stages. And my experience has been, especially having teachers in, the, in this tradition, as soon as I got into the comfort zone, they pushed me out. Say, okay, now you got to go do a three-month retreat, or now you got to do a ten, or say, now you need to do this, or you might want to consider doing that. And so I, find, I found myself always on the learning curve. But the exciting thing is, because I do a lot of work with ath athletes, and the great thing about working with athletes and athletic competition is that there's very defined beginnings and endings. And there's usually rules that you can go by that are pretty obvious, and if you don't notice the rules, the officials will tell you or the coaches, or your teammates. So you don't have to worry about knowing what the rules are or when, when you're doing something that's skillful or not. And so to, in order to compete at a high level, and I've had the great experience of working with elite athletes and, and professional. I worked five years with the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan, and those folks, and I worked four years with, with Kobe and Shaq with the Lakers, and I've worked... Um, this is my seventh season with the Boston College men's basketball team, but I work with Olympic skaters and fencers and, and all sorts of people, not to mention executive coaching with, with high-level executives. So I study excellence. And one of the things that I recognize is, and you don't have to be an athlete to have this experience, but we talk about having that flow experience where, where everything is just flowing, and, and if you're playing a sport, uh, especially if you're playing basketball, the basket looks bigger and, and time just dissolves and stuff like that. Well, there's certain things that have to happen in order for that to happen. Being around Michael Jordan and watching him, and the interesting thing about Michael Jordan is that he's very teachable. And the first thing I noticed about him was his tremendous concentration of samadhi. And he had strong will to win. And the interesting thing was he was always trying... One thing you may not know about him, and maybe this is an appropriate time to talk about that, is that he got cut from his high school basketball team. How many people knew that? Okay, very few. Okay, so he got cut from his basketball team, and the coach said to him, okay, if you're willing to work hard, you know, come by and get you at 5 o'clock in the morning or whatever. Well, anyway, by the time I saw Michael Jordan and he came back to the Bulls in 94-95 season, he was still trying to make the Bulls. So he used his experience of getting cut, and he said, I'm never going to get cut again. 
And so what did he do? He, he always increased his skill level. So the thing about playing in that place of, of, of uh, uh, optimal ability has to do with, it's funny because it's between boredom and anxiety. So if, if, if we are confronted with a challenge that's beyond our skill level, we experience anxiety. And if we're confronted in a situation where we have high skill, low challenge, we get bored. And so the challenge is with these elite athletes, as well as for us, is to keep increasing our skill level, but at the same time keep increasing our standards or our challenges. And so we want to have that place where we're challenged a little bit beyond our skill level. Of course, crises has a way of doing that for us and some of the other things. So sometimes we can look at crises as a blessing because it makes us be in that high arousal state, and all we got to do is bring the alertness and the mindfulness to it, and, and, and we might be able to have a, a great experience in spite of, of the difficulty. And so this is what I encourage people to do, as well as myself. You have to keep getting better and better. You keep growing, keep evolving. And there's actually a book called Good Business by this guy, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, uh, and he's a psychologist out of the University of Chicago, and he's the one that, that developed this whole flow process. But what he says is that as human beings and as you look at it, we have to grow in complexity like I talked about with the car. So that, what does that mean? It, that means that each one of us has unique talents. And so the challenge is what he calls differentiation. The challenge is to develop the, that unique talent, to, to discover that unique talent, and to ride it to wherever it takes us. And once you do that, then you, you're supposed to integrate it, and that means you share it with the greater community. So that's a very altruistic uh, way of looking at it, but it's fascinating because as you do that, you develop more complexity. So, okay, so, so you learn how to do one, one, and they say now that we're going to have like five careers, so you learn how to do something really well, and then you, you can challenge yourself, say, okay, maybe I'll do this now, and then you, you learn how to apply your unique talents. And that's really hard because there are people around us uh, and even ourselves where there's a yikes experience when we say, okay, this is what I'm doing, yikes. You know, that means if I do this, uh, there, there's a deep knowing. It's a very existential thing about the fact that we were born alone, we're going to die alone. And when we exercise free choice, we experience what they call the dizziness of freedom. This idea that, and then there's the guilt that comes in. Well, if I made this decision now, why didn't I make it two weeks ago or ten years ago? And so there's this, it's, even though we say, yeah, even my, myself, I'll tell you, my most stressful time was when I graduated from, from graduate school, got a new car, and had a nice relationship, and the job was going great. And I had tremendous anxiety. Because I didn't know who the hell I was. Excuse my friends. But I didn't know who this person was because my idea was, you know, you're never going to do anything. You're never going to be anything. It's always going to be hard. People aren't going to like you. You're not going to get what you want. And so there was some cognitive dissonance there. It, it, didn't, it didn't fit my self-image. And that's what happens sometimes. And so in, in, unless we're able to use this practice to investigate the mindfulness, uh, the right effort, but having the faith and trust to even engage in the endeavor. And so a lot of these things get, got pushed on me. Like I got to the point, the only reason why I got clean was because my butt was on fire and 
I couldn't do any. I had to get clean because nothing was working. I had reached, reached my bottom. And some of these other, like when I left that job as a financial analyst, I didn't leave because it was cool or I was smart. I left because my butt was on fire. And I couldn't stay there. And I had to leave. It was too painful to stay and too painful to leave. But I left because that was the only decision that made sense, even though I didn't know what I was getting into. So this whole idea of, and then I'm not saying all growth experiences are painful, but I'm saying to me, especially the ones where there's a paradigm shift, when we start seeing things differently or when we're getting out of our comfort zone, especially if we get lunged out of our comfort zone and don't gradual, like, like Stephen Levine talks about, a gradual awakening. Sometimes it can be gradual and you don't experience stuff, but by and by at some point, at least for myself, there's times where it's in your face and it's very painful, but as I get acclimated to the new space, to the new consciousness, then, then I, started, I start getting back to being okay with it. But the interesting thing about this practice is you can be okay with not being okay. And I think that's a huge part of, of this process for me is being okay that I'm not okay and, and taking refuge in and uh, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And, and what that means is understanding that I have Buddha nature and, and that there's laws, there's actually teachings that will help navigate me through this process and that there's a, a Sangha and included in Sangha I talk about good friends or teachers or mentors who have gone before us who can help us navigate the way. And so understanding that is really important because I have to tell you, it would be nice for me to sit here and say, well, I have the kind of mindfulness that tells me when I'm uh, off the beam. That's, hap that's true sometimes, but sometimes I need loved ones and friends and teachers to tell me that I'm off the beam because I can't see it because, because it's a blind spot I may have. And so it takes a tremendous amount of faith and effort to be able to open or say, okay, well, I trust this person. Let me check it out. And of course, once I check it out, I say, okay, they're right. But there's something about uh, unpleasantness or pain that makes me recoil, and I'm not interested in it. I'm really not interested in it. I'd just as soon have pleasant experiences. That's one reason I got into drugs and alcohol. I love be feeling good. <laughs> I'm addicted to feeling good. But now I find that there's a way of feeling good just by being with what is, and, and, and as Robert Frost said, the only way out is through. So working through that discomfort, working through that pain. Because to me, I experience, especially these big growth uh, spurts, with, with a, a symbolic death. And so I go through all the stages of dying. I go through denial, bargaining, anger, depression, and then acceptance. And, and it's interesting because I would say to one of my teachers or one of my uh, mentors or friends, I'm going through another freaking growth experience. You know? and, and now I don't say that too much. Now I say thank you. Because I know if I can only hang in there and allow it to be and get out of the way, things will work out well. And just talking about last year, I had, unbeknownst to me, I had identified myself as being a Lakers sports psychologist of course, it's, it's, you, know, you can get into that because even if you don't want to, people will tell you, oh, you work for the Lakers. Oh, it's great. I've seen you on TV. And, and you know, so you, there's a lot of attachments with that. And uh, I remember last year when 
around this time when I knew I wasn't going to be working with them. And then I had to say, okay, here we go again. It's like I have to let go of that, that one, and move on. And, of course, by letting go of that, uh, it meant I had a lot of sacrifices, but it allowed me to do some other things. I had an opportunity to to do some work with uh, with the Dalai Lama and one of my teachers, Jack Cornfield, in New York with with uh, ex-offenders. And I got an opportunity to go down to to Wharton School of Business and do some leadership uh, training, and Deepak Chopra was there. So even though these, the door closed, these other doors opened. Now, I'm not saying it's just be name-dropping. I'm saying it's to say, when I let go, this stuff kind of shows up. I don't understand it, but I just go. But there's something about knowing that if I can keep moving beyond my comfort zone, everything turns out okay, even at the time it doesn't feel that way. And so for me, this idea of us growing in complexity is really important, but it is hard. I'll give you an example of experience I had yesterday. One of my teams is the BC women's volleyball team. And yesterday I was on campus. We had a match, 7 o'clock. And I stroll into the gym, and the associate uh, athletic director, which is one of the administrators that runs things, asked me to be the line judge for the game. Now, I, I don't know the first thing about volleyball in terms of rules. And they came up to me and said, well, go up there and just put the flag up when it's out and put it down with this. Well, I have to tell you, they sound like simple things, but there was a whole lot of anxiety going on with that situation. It's a new situation. And, and it was like, and they said, you know, if you freak out, just let us know. I said, okay, I'll be all right. Breathe in, <laughs> breathe out. And it's amazing that the level of my awareness was different because I'm in that fight or flight response. My body's trying to say, George, you know, uh, we got to make it safe in here. We, we got to really, uh, we don't have that comfort level that we usually have when we do things. And things I've done a thousand times and comfortable with, this is a new experience. And it's, it means you're going through that freaking learning curve again. It means, you, you know, but unfortunately, you skip the first step, you know you don't know. And so, so I was experiencing that, and, just, and I, I survived. But I have to tell you, it, it wasn't pleasant. There were times when it wasn't pleasant, especially when one of my kids stopped yelling, how'd you miss that one? <laughs> <laughs> I was right, but she was, she was trying to see if I was going to be strong enough to, to, uh, say, to have confidence in, in what I saw. And so I do have confidence, and I do have confidence in my men mental abilities to see things or to know when I'm not seeing things clearly. And that, that helps. It definitely helps. Of course, I can go on with my computer software. I don't know if you folks uh, have PC computers, but I had, a, I had a desktop and a laptop that I use, and I have Windows 98 on it. And uh, I have uh, you know, wireless network. I have all this stuff. Uh, and I was told that if I didn't upgrade, they wouldn't they wouldn't uh, give me support anymore. So I had to upgrade to Windows XP. Boy, I have to tell you, it's like light years different than the other one. And even though people say, oh, that's great, you got to learn all that stuff. And, and it's, it, once again, it's stepping out there with technology today. I could talk about my cell phone, my PDA, uh, even, even uh, VCR or DVD. They got all these menus and stuff. You really have to understand this stuff. And it's like, uh, the undiscovered country. And so when I find myself going through this thing, it's like I, I bought, um, I had to get uh, something to connect my computer with my PDA. 
And so I got the thing, and I plugged it in, because this is where the anxiety comes in, because I don't really know what I'm looking for, and I don't really know what I'm doing. And I realized afterwards that it came with a CD-ROM, and I was supposed to install the software. <laughs> and I kept saying, how come that thing doesn't work? And then, so then I sent it back, I got another one, and then it dawned on me, the light bulb went off. Maybe there's a CD with it, and maybe you've got to put the program in so they're interface. And so it's like, but I don't do this every day. And so, but once again, I was mindful that I wasn't mindful. And so the next time I get some, some adapter or some instrument that has to be downloaded, I'll know how to do it. But by then, they'll probably change it and it won't be a <laughs> CD. It'll be something else. It'll be something that's digital online. You have to download or something. But still, this is, this is my life. This is the life we live in where we are required to become more complex just to keep up with our interaction with other people. And when we start talking about emotions and thoughts and the mind, it's more intangible and it's harder to see. But that's part of the process. As long as, as we can bring enough mindfulness to bear, and as long as we, we have faith and we combine the faith with the, we balance the faith with the wisdom or understanding, then we're able to continue to grow and develop. The flip side of that is uh, I have a great life and I'm, I'm happy. And I'm doing what I, I was brought here to do. And so, in spite of that, there's always these things that I go through, but I always feel more joy, uh, more connectedness afterwards. So I, I don't want to spend a lot of time, but really today is about exploring, investigating this idea of you know, moving beyond the comfort zone because it's part of, it's necessary if we're going to have a good quality life and if we're going to continue to grow and learn. And I think as human beings, we evolve anyway. And, and that's part of the evolution. And then this idea of complexity, developing our uniqueness, and then having the courage to share it with other people. I think that's what it's about. I think that's a lot of what I try to do with my clients and people I work with. And that is to help them be the best of them they can be. But it's, they have to make that choice. And if they make a choice and if they want to develop their uniqueness, great. If they don't, that's still great. But if they develop their uniqueness and become willing to share it with people, uh, it makes things a lot better. It, it brings a lot of divinity into the world when that can happen. And we all have something to offer. And that's the thing that I stress a lot with my teams, especially when you have some people that play a lot and some people who don't. Some people may be on scholarship and some people who don't. We need everybody. And when everybody joins and when everybody gives what they have to offer, it's a fantastic experience. And so a lot of this, and it's funny because, once again, I get attached sometimes because I'm around people to get involved in winning and losing, when in actuality, when people, even myself, my own work, if I just focus on just doing what I do, all that other stuff takes care of itself. It's like the athletes I work with. Just go out there, forget about yourself, and find yourself. Because if you go out there, how am I doing, how am I doing? You're not going to be doing well. But if you go out there and say, I'm just going to have fun, I'm just going to be there now, and I'm just going to use my, my uh, ongoing skill development and setting challenging goals for myself so that I'm, I'm always playing on that edge of, of high arousal but with alertness and relaxation there. And so I'd be very excited about questions you have, and, and hopefully this makes sense to you. It's really just a jumping-off point, especially because it's Rosh Hashanah and it's the beginning of the Jewish New Year, 
And it's also the beginning of a lot of folks who are going back to school, beginning of autumn. So to me, it seems really appropriate to talk about changes because this is a, a community. This is a place where there's climate changes. There's seasons. There's four seasons, and there's seasons of life. And also, there's this idea of things changing all around us, and some of the things we don't have control over, but the hope is that we understand that no matter what happens to us, we can choose our response, and we can control how we change with the changes. And so I want to end with a, with a poem, and uh, then we'll open it up for discussion. One of the things that's changed is uh, I have to, my, as I get older, I have to use glasses so I can see what I'm talking about. So this is called the Paradoxical Commandments. People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you, do good, if you do good, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help but may attack you if you do not help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. And this is called, Anyway, the Paradoxical Commandments by Kent M. Keiths, published by G.P. Putnam's, Putnam Son, Putnam's Sons. So... Pretty much it. I want to keep it short and sweet, but I think this is a fascinating topic because because we we can engage in having a good quality life and actually making this a better place if we're willing to move out of our comfort zone. So, can we just end with a moment of silence? So thank you all for being here. So I think we'll take a break for the questions.
you try the worst it gets, so you got to do the, yeah, and you got to de- decide what level, because intensity is really, some people, you know, there's intensity, different intensities, like if you play somebody who's moving really quick, you got to meet that intensity, you know, they'll blow you over. No, but it's great to because I can play the and I can really get on the ball, I'm cold, 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 I'm Okay. Good. Yeah, it's been a while. So, okay. So, and do we just let's just start up? Okay. Okay. Your people. Okay, open it up for questions. Yes. I was interested in the comment you made, the, the advice that Larry gave you about dropping that label. Right. Um, I find myself doing a similar thing. I'm not. A, um, I'm a child of an alcoholic family, so I continually refer to some of my behavior as being that of an ACOA. Mm-hmm. And I just realized listening to you, I was caught, caught in the same trap that I just recently in some family difficulties. I've had to explain my behavior. Mm-hmm. I'm always going back to that, saying I'm an ACOA. But in effect, I, I just realized that it's kind of disabled. Mm-hmm. You know, now I have to learn how to define my, do I even have to define my behavior? Mm-hmm. As soon as you have to explain it, then you've got yourself in a trap. So I found that extremely useful. Yes. I have to find my own way, though, if it becomes necessary to explain my behavior or to help, you know, um, whether or not I even have to get into that. Yes, uh, you, you raise a great point. Did everybody hear what he was talking about? Because what happens is once you start labeling it, then you limit what you're able to perceive. Say that again. Uh, once you limit it or you label it, oh, that's ACOL, ACOA behavior, it may not be. But by you labeling it, you've already put it in a category and you've cut your awareness off from investigating further to see whether or not it's actually something else because, believe it or not, even if you're not an ACOA, even if you're not a ACOA, uh, other people who aren't ACOA have those same emotions, and they have those same situations. Just the, the difference between them and you is you, you have a hyperarousal, or you you get into this reactive phase because that's the conditioning. But but people understand that, and that's why it's really because the thing we talk about beginner's mind around here, and that is. The idea of um, applying what we call bare attention and just seeing the bare sensations, the bare um, information that's, that's being presented to you without the likes or dislikes and without the labels and, and all the ideas of what we think it is rather than just experiencing what it is. And so it's not so much that you don't consider, by not having a label, then you can start seeing your behavior. And, and, and this practice is real simple. 
you just look at the behavior. Is it skillful or is it unskillful? There's no judging involved. There's no, yeah, well, this is why I'm that, like that way. Now, that's helpful sometimes, but a lot of times, anger is anger, fear is fear, and there's a story about it. And getting lost in the story uh, doesn't help your proclivity to be angry. The idea is that when you can see the anger is anger and understand how it affects your body and affects your mind and your spirit, then you can choose to relate to it in a way where this is what we call right effort, where you know how to make it go away without pushing it away, without denying it. And so that's a big part of the practice, and, and we call that effort or energy because it creates great energy when you can get rid of or when you can relate to the hindrances, you know, like the anger and the, the doubt and the restlessness, whatever, those negative emotions, if you can relate to them in a way where you bring more mindfulness. And so if there's hatred, if you can bring love and kindness there, it's a different energy. Or as, or as Dr. Hawkins says in his book, there's a book called Power Versus Force, that's, that's, a, that's a high attractor. Uh, level and that's power. Power doesn't need a reinforcement to keep happening. Force does. That's the difference between force and power. Power, these, these spiritual principles, the power is there. You don't have to do anything there. It's just there and it emanates and it's self-evident and it's self-generating. Uh, that makes sense? Okay, someone else back there? Yes, sir. Yeah, we have an old uh, reframe around here. More sitting is required. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, The first one, Dennis Rodman. Uh, don't judge a book by its cover. You may think that he's off the wall, but Dennis is extreme, was extremely smart and extremely dedicated to what he did. So people have this idea he's a flake or whatever, but he's a great guy. I mean, you're, all I have to do is tell you when, when they had the the incident down in Texas where the African-American man got dragged by a truck. Dennis paid for his funeral. So a lot of people don't know that about him. But, you know, he does his stuff because he's what Phil would refer to as the uh, trickster. Or, you know, there, there was a movie called uh, Little Big Man, and they had this guy, he was a contrary. He did everything opposite. He, he'd wash with dirt and ride his horse backwards or whatever. That's, that's Dennis. If you relate to Dennis like that, it's not a problem. That's what he does. As far as your, uh, you asked a very interesting question. Uh, is your anxiety around or your discomfort around the raise and grade or the fact that you're not doing what you really want to do? So that's something, that, that's why I said more sittings required. That's something you have to reflect on. But I suspect you know the answer already or you're kind of leaning towards it, or just the fact that you're open to that possibility is, is important. And then to use more investigation. What I mean by that is just check it out. And, you know, when you do sitting and, and when you get quiet, you've got to ask yourself, what do you really want? And, you know, you know I'm not talking about, and I'm assuming that, that you know the difference between that being answered by some... some, some um, 
addiction or, or some other pull. You understand what I'm saying? Because one of the things about this, this process is that one of the things the mind-body does is sometimes it will distort perception so it keeps things the same. You understand what I'm saying? What I, what I mean is that sometimes when we know what the right answer is, we act like we don't know. We go into denial because if we do that, then it means uh, things are going to change, we're going to change, and sometimes the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. So this process all the time is investigating. That's why it's important to have people around you or, or, or people that you can relate to that can help you when, you when you have a blind spot, an area where you're not seeing clearly what's going on. But in this case, it's, it's more about you investigating because if you get the job and it's not the right job, you can always quit versus not going for it and, and regretting you didn't go for it. So, I mean, you have a lot of options. And that's usually what I do. I give people several options and then they can choose what they want to do. But it's really about what do you want uh, and, and going from there. Yes? Okay, the philosophy of winning and losing. Well, to me, if you get so involved in winning and losing, I say if that's your ultimate, like I think it was, I know it was Vince Lombardi that says uh, winning is not only everything, it's the only thing. Now, it all depends what you mean by winning. Because to me, if you are playing better than you played the previous game, and you lose the game, you're still a winner because you're improving, you're growing. And besides, the other person may just be better than you. And I don't care how much you think, that's just the way it is. So to me, it's, it's more about being than doing. So what does that mean? That means if, if you do the right things, there's certain principles involved with how we relate to each other. Like if you're on a team, like are you referring individually or, or team-wise or... Either way. My, my take on it is that, that, that winning, especially when you have that winning attitude, it develops more of me, mine, and I. And, and it's more self-consciousness. And when you compete, or even when you're interacting with somebody, the more self-conscious you are, the less you're there and the, more, the less effective you're going to be because you're so focused on how you're doing and not what you're doing. And so to me, it's real clear that if the winning comes as a byproduct of doing things skillfully, then that's fine. But you could, you could, you could be playing your best and still not win. I'll give you an example. A team, one of my favorite teams is the BC men's basketball team I worked with the first year. I worked with them in 98. Uh, they played 27 games, and their record was 6-21. and 21. That means they only won six games. The reason that team was one of my favorite teams is because they left everything on the court. I mean... They, they would give you your, their best effort. Uh, they lost. The other teams were better. They were anxious. They should have been anxious. They weren't that good. <laughs> but the fact is, they developed. So where two years later, they were 27 and 5. Wow. And it, it's, it's this process of just getting better a little bit at a time, doing a little bit better than you were, bef being a little bit better than you were before, and focusing on, 
on the immediacy of experience, the here and now, and then, okay, I want to do this, I want to get to this level, but these are the incremental steps. Having that learning curve I talked about. So in the first year, learning curve. But they got to a point where they knew they knew, and then they got to a point where they didn't know they knew, and they just went out there and it was automatic. So that's why I'm saying when you're looking at the, the short term, that's a problem. But if you look at it long term and just understanding that, especially if we're talking about that learning curve, you got to give yourself time to learn. So it's really about the energy and the effort and the attitude more than whether you win or not. Because you could win one year, but then if you're not developing those attitudes and mind states, it won't be consistent. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, let me know. We can keep going. But, not everybody can win every year. but that's the whole point. That's why I'm saying it's an internal victory versus an external victory. Because I, I can tell you, you can have people who win, but they don't feel good about it because they didn't have to play their best effort to win. So it's really those, those competitions where somebody loses and you say, well, too bad somebody had to lose, but they both got a lot out of being involved in that process of just doing the very best you can and just letting it go and being okay with that. And that's what I liked about that team is they just gave you their best. Rather than some, another team that maybe 20, you know, wins a lot of games, but you know, they're, they're not even, they're just kind of walking through it. They're not there. That's a different experience. And so to me, we're way too hung up on winning and losing and not hung up on just, just developing and being, being, doing the best we can do on that day. Because guess what? People get hurt. Sometimes, some days you don't feel it. But if you do the best you can, regardless of the injuries or how you feel, that's enough. Okay. Yeah, lady, yes. You mean there's somebody there, but you're not giving them a voice. I, that's what I'm saying. We, we call that self-talk. Okay? Yeah. So, if you can hear this negative self-talk, you can say, I don't believe you. And you can say, and, and what you do is, it's interesting because if you try to not be negative, you'll be more negative. But if you just replace the negative with a positive, that's enough. So, if it says, you know, you're not good enough... Say, well, what do you know? You can't read the future. I, I, you know, I'm already good. I don't need to do anything. I'm already okay. I'm already good, and it's going to be okay. And that's, you know, it'll be all right. I'm learning. This is a great experience. Uh, it's going to be okay. Yes, because that's, that's what, we, what I was saying about right effort. It's the mind state. If you're in doubt, you've got to remove the doubt because the, the doubt, not only is it affecting your mind, but your body doesn't, when you're in doubt, your body's going to be hesitant. It's going to be in doubt as well. But if you're clear and if you're uh, on purpose, then your body's going to follow. Because wherever your mind goes, the body goes. So if you understand that it's positive mental attitudes that make a difference rather than the negative ones, not only does it change your thinking, but it changes your whole chemistry in your body in terms of your healing. And it's actually... 
you know, when your your attitudes have a lot to do with your healing. So if you if you have this this idea that the world is full of scarcity, then that puts you in a really tight uh, spot. In other words, everything is life or death, rather than there's an abundance. And you know, if I just ease into it and not act like it's, uh, you know. Uh, the most important thing in the world because when you do that, you try too hard. When you try hard, you don't, you're not skillful. So that's why, once again, it's always about is it skillful or is it not skillful? So you can get into whether you should beat yourself up or not, or you can ask is it skillful or is it not skillful? And I would tell you if it's doubt is not skillful, but doubt is a proximate cause of wisdom. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you have doubt, ask questions and investigate. That's how you deal with doubt. Instead of being doubtful and stopping altogether, no, investigate. Okay, let's check this out. Let's see if it's for real. If I say something to you, I don't expect you to just say, okay, George said it is true. I want you to check it out. Because then when you check it out and if it's true, guess what? You're going you're gonna to understand that it's true and that that's, you have a way of differentiating between truth and falsehood. If you apply yourself and you check it out and investigate and put it to the test. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, I was uh, curious about um, your statement about how um, in 12-step programs, which I've been a member for many years, um, and it resonated for me when you said that describing yourself as a uh, recovering addict was limiting. Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I, I can answer it. Of course, it's been so long ago uh, that um, there's different 12-step meetings. If, you, if you're t- talking about, like, alcohol and, and drugs, that's a different set. If you're talking about Al-Anon, that's different. Because right. the, the thing about Al-Anon, it focuses always on you, and that's more compatible with, with this process of inner development and, and seeking happiness from within. Uh, but the, key, the whole thing about 12-step programs is the spirituality. And if you can keep it in the spirit and connecting to something greater than yourself, that's very helpful. That's another way of saying expanded consciousness. But um, if you happen to be in a group where they're stuck in developmental phase of adolescence and it's us against them, then you have to decide what you want to deal with. If you want to be one of them, and if you're not one of them, you must be one of the other. So if you become one or the other, I don't know how you can stay there unless you like getting beat up and you like being other rather than being connected with the main group. So you go where you need to go, where you can be who you are. That would be my, my take on that. Okay? Yes. Well, first, first thing you said, you said striving for growth. Uh, I don't like that word striving because that's a, that's a 
different energy than just allowing or or participating in the growth because the striving in itself there's a lot of selfing there and that energy uh, creates a whole different thing now I'm not really sure about your about this acceptance self-acceptance thing and whether there's a paradox between self-acceptance and accepting things as they are I think there's you know they can they're interconnected but they're separate this whole idea of self-acceptance has to do with just being okay with who you are as you are now and that's a process that doesn't happen overnight sometimes and for some of us uh, when we come in here we can't even do loving kindness because uh, the self-esteem is so low or the self-acceptance is not there but as you start to do this as you continue to do this practice and if you can do the mindfulness piece which is just observing in a relaxed way, things as they are. Because what happens is we observe things, but we're changing it because we don't like it. That's, a diff that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about at some point being able to create a, a container where you can hold with whatever comes up. And your idea is just to investigate and just say, okay, what is this? Okay, uh, so this idea of self-acceptance, okay, that I kind of know what you mean, but then again... Uh, you have to look at your internal experience to the degree that you go beyond the words and you just uh, understand that this part. So let me give you an example. When, when I stopped being an athlete uh, and then I was doing the, the intellectual stuff, I didn't want people to know that I was an athlete because there was this stereotype of being a jock. I didn't want people to think I was a jock. I was not accepting myself. Because I felt that I wasn't comfortable with that. I have to integrate that into. That's it's not it's that it, that's who I am. But it's okay for me to have had that experience. And have been that way. So I'm not judging myself for having been that way. Or growing up in an alcoholic home. It's more about just accepting you as you are. And even if you're not where you want to be. Being where you are. And so this idea of self-acceptance as you are now, not as a term uh, where you want to be at some point. You understand what I'm saying? So it's real clear. It's just being with uh, things as they are. And that includes you. And just saying, okay, I don't like it. It's okay to not like it. No, you don't like it. But this is how it is. So it's like my definition of stress. Stress is this is where I want things to be. This is where things are. That's suffering, that's stress. Because I need to be where things are. And I need to accept that. And that's really hard. And that's part of this growing out of our, getting out of our comfort zone because it's the pain of seeing on some level that we're our own worst enemies. That our own thinking is creating the suffering. That we could also choose to be okay with things as they are. Now that doesn't mean if somebody's abusing you or being mean to you that you accept that it means that that you accept the fact that you can st you have you can say to them I don't like what you're doing but I can't control you and then I need to let that go and and, and remove my body from from the situation like because all of these defenses are are acts of self-love you think about it it's an act of self-love. You're trying to protect yourself, but there's ignorance in terms of whether you're doing it in a skillful manner or not. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, sir. It seems like you 
fun hearing all of your stuff. You seem to deal with a lot of people who are very successful athletes, you know, like young people. But, you know, especially this summer, I ran across a lot of people who were having. Well, I, I cry a lot. Mm -hmm. Because things are really sad for so many people. Mm -hmm. I mean, let me put it to you this way. Everybody has sadness. Some people don't. It's whether you get stuck in it or not. And I have worked in prison. So I've been in the hell realms. And I've been in the hell realms myself. And the sadness, once again, it, it, it's kind of a thing where you experience it without being identified with it. Which is really hard because there's a comfort level. To, yeah, this, is, this feels comfortable. Even though it's bad, it feels comfortable because I know how it's going to go. And even that's a false statement because you're, if you watch it and if you are open to it without identifying with it, you'll see it's like anything else. It arises and it passes away. And sometimes it stays around. And the more you try to get rid of it, the more it stays around. So it's a matter of just saying, okay, the sadness here is here. I feel it in my body, breathing in, breathing out. And just being with it instead of getting lost in a story about it. That's where it keeps feeding, fanning the flame of keeping it. And the unfortunate thing is, the more you do that, the more you create the proclivity to be sad. So it, it's understanding that there's a way of experiencing life that creates more of the same. It would be wrong concentration. And there's a way of experiencing the emotion where you're becoming free from it. You're allowing it to be and you're detaching yourself from it. You're not clinging and grasping because we cling and grasp to the unpleasant stuff as well and that's the cause of suffering is attachment so if you can let go of it, it, it you know it, it's fine it's like you know we're angry we have a burning hot coal in our hand and we're holding on to it this is my anger and i'm going to hit you with this but meanwhile you're burning and so if you understand it's anger and you you can get into the story, sometimes getting into the story is important because you want to understand how it arises and all that stuff. But the main thing is there's anger in the mind. There's anger in the mind. So you get intimate with the anger so you know what it feels like without getting lost in it. And then at some point you say, okay, been there, done that, it's time to let this go. And then you learn how to change that anger into loving kindness. So it's not like you can say, okay, I'm angry, I'm going to be, may they be happy, may they be happy. Uh, that's energy that you're doing it in order to get rid of it. That's more of that striving kind of stuff rather than saying, okay, it's here, it's okay for it to be here. And then gradually allowing, allowing it to go. And then sometimes that means you just have to consciously choose to focus on another object and say, time out. I'm taking a break from this anger, and I'm going to focus on what's right. I'm going to focus on something else. I'm going to focus on, on maybe I get out of myself and I go help the lady across the street or open the door for somebody. Uh, or the kindness for myself is to say, you know, I know I'm a warrior and I work through this stuff, but I'm going to take a break, five-minute break from this anger. You know, maybe I'll go watch the Three Stooges or something. Do something else. You understand what I'm saying? But I'm not saying you have to watch TV or anything, but you have to refocus your attention. But the way you do that is really important, not to just do it unconsciously, but to consciously say, you know, uh, I'm going to work on right effort, which mean, means learning how to have a rise 
a skillful state of mind like mindfulness or loving kindness or compassion or something like that. So this is why it's really individual because even though I give you these techniques and, and the books talk about it, you have to figure out a way of dealing with anger that works for you. Yes? Opening up. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's exactly right. When I talk about expanding consciousness or whatever, I'm talking about all levels, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, uh, that. But if you pay attention, you'll know what to do. If the mindfulness is strong enough, you will know what to do. And it may be different, but you'll know what to do. Uh, yes, ma'am. And then I'll get back Right. And then your discussion on sometimes we will manipulate the reality and change the perception so that things don't change. Could you talk a little bit more about how do you do that, that second, how do you understand and get clarity into that second part around where you might be manipulating your perception or the reality to keep things the same so mm-hmm. that you know you're working through the right thing? Because mm-hmm. Well, that's why I said it, it's really sometimes, uh, that's why it's helpful to have a teacher or have a good friend or have a sangha or people who know you and can call you on things. If, because some of the stuff, you're right, we can't see it. But at the same time, if you're doing a practice like noting, like, a lot, like um, let's say, give me an example, what emotional state were you talking about or or give me an example of um, you have a sense that you should make a change okay that's a good one yeah but then you're, and you're working through I need to make that change that's really running from something or yeah not. yeah well that's where you gotta have to investigate and, and 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 see the energy like if you were noting the noting tone or just the fact whether you you gradually ease away from it, or if you herky-jerky got away from it, that might be an indication that you know, it's probably unpleasant and I want to get out of here. And of course, that's the other thing. If it's unpleasant, you're going to run from it. If it's pleasant, you're going to run to it. And if it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, you're probably going to space out on it. So that's what we do. And so it's understanding, um, investigating that, and, and, and asking yourself, okay, assuming that I need to make the change. Why am I making the change? That's why we start, we start investigating our motives behind the intentions that we form. Okay, why am I doing this? And what's the payoff? And you might ask yourself, what's the payoff for not making this choice? And so sometimes that will tell you as well. And sometimes when I see people doing things, I say to myself, what's the payoff for them doing it? And then when you see, okay, there's more advantage to, to do it than not to do it, then, then you start to read into that. But uh, it can be complex. It could be simple. It really de- de- depends on the amount of wisdom 
and mindfulness you can bring into the situation and just deeply listening and just settling back and if you can develop that bare attention where you can just observe yourself behaving without changing it but actually so that you become more familiar with it and you start to see how how it comes into being how it goes out for instance usually this stuff has to do it comes into one of the sense doors Either it comes in through thought or you see something or you smell something, you taste something. And that first contact creates a whole process of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, then the, the, the perception, the labeling of what it is, and then the formation, the thoughts about it. And the proliferate, and of course you have to have consciousness there for it to actually register. So as you start guarding what we call guarding the sense doors, it becomes clear how these things come in come into being. It starts with a thought or maybe some association with a certain certain thing or certain experience. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. You know, it's real, you know. 
Yeah, well, more sitting is required. No, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> no, is, 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 you were using a lot of shoulds and stuff. See, to me, it's, it doesn't really matter on some level what the thing is. It's when you have judgments about it and when you think things ought to be a certain way and they're not. They are what they are. So if you like sports, then like sports. You don't have to be in an attachment. You don't, have to, you don't really have to judge, uh, justify anything. And you say, I, I do this because I love it. It's so nice. Well, you think it's violent? Yeah, maybe it is, but this is what I like to do, and it's okay for me to enjoy that as far as being a Red Sox fan. Um, once again, are you a fan because you, they're winners, or are you a fan because you like them and because they, they're your home team and you want to support them? See, all of that stuff makes a difference. Because there's a lot of towns that don't have a team sometimes. So to me, it's, it's really your attitude towards it and, and how much you can accept it is what it is. And they might win. And, and the interesting thing about being a fan is sometimes you hope for them to win even though you don't think they will. Sometimes that's, that's the joy of it's just like, you know, okay, you, 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 know, you, you love a flower or you love something and it's going to die whether it's a personal flower, it's going to die. It's going to fade, but uh, you're going to say, I'm not going to love it because it's going to die, or am I going to love it while it lives? Or I'm going to enjoy this while I enjoy it, and I don't have to justify it or have these ideas about what's correct and what's not correct because the ball team is a reflection of the culture. So I could, show, I could say that same thing about other endeavors, people throwing chairs and throwing nutties and, and just going crazy and reacting because people are trying to vicariously live or, or connect to something greater than themselves, and some of those things are not so skillful. Or some of the, the endeavors they engage in is not so skillful. But I would suspect everybody wants to be happy. Now, how you seek happiness, maybe it's skillful, maybe it's not. So to me, it's like it's, it's really about whatever you decide to do, you can be okay with that. And, you know, if, if you love it, you love it. It's just like, just like accepting it because in, until you accept it, you're not going to be able to change it. And like I said, I've lived in Boston all my life being a Red Sox fan. You know, it's, it's like I used to be a Celtics fan. Notice I said used to. But, you know, I have ideas about uh, what teams should be about. And if people violate those principles, then, then I may have a problem with that. So... Uh, once again, it, it's really about, but there's some personalities on there, like Pedro, you know, uh, Derek Lowe. You know, it depends. Sometimes you just watch it because you like certain people. I have a young grand, uh, not grandson, I'm not even having any kids, but I have a <laughs> godson, and he loves the Red Sox. And the thing about kids, you can learn a lot about kids. He doesn't care if they won the championship or not. He just loves them, and he enjoys the game. So maybe there's something to that.
<laughs> so, so, so what do you want? Interesting. No, 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 whatever you say is cool. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. That's what I said. That's what I said. Yeah. But that's interesting that his wife doesn't mind. Well, you haven't talked to her yet, though. So you don't, 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 uh, don't assume. <laughs> yeah. I mean. So, do you have something to say about that? Yeah, more cynical to be quiet. <laughs> no, 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 no. What, what, it, what it comes down to is uh, you have to decide what choices you want to make and what's important to you. And this is, this is uh, I mean, this is, I'm sure this happens all the time. On some level, we know if we make a certain choice or we make a certain confrontation, it may have an impact. It may jeopardize a relationship. Or the relationship will change one way or the other. And so it's really a thing where, where you, it, it's about you um, making choices that are skillful for you. And when you're interacting with other people, uh, the choice affects them as well. So, so ideally, uh, to communicate and figure out how to make it work. See, this is, this, this is a complicated issue, and a lot of it has to do with, because, you know, I, I could get into it. We don't have enough time to get into it. But the bottom line is you've got to ask yourself, or you might want to ask yourself, um, like me, I can play the victim and say, you know, this person is doing this, that, or, or the other thing to me, or I could say to myself, what's the payoff for me being here? And, and if I don't want to be here, then why am I here? Or if I, don't, if I want things to be different, then what am I doing to make sure that happens? And how do I interact with another person? See, this is, it gets real complicated, but it also always comes down to your happiness comes from inside of you. So if you come to me as your teacher... I'm going to focus on you. I don't really care about him so much. I do, but it's really about you and your internal process and what you're doing and, and what choices you need to make. It's kind of like Al-Anon. Keep the focus on yourself and because what you're talking about happens with a lot of people who have mates and significant others who are, who are addicted, like myself being addicted. Somebody trying to control me, well, they could sit 200 years and they still be in trouble. Because they can't control me. They can only control them. And so uh, it's something you have to reflect on, but it's really about you dealing with you. So, yeah, you're reacting to him, and I'm not saying that he should go scot-free or whatever, but I'm also saying that you have more control than you think. And I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Okay? Whatever. Whatever you decide. Okay. You had a question. Yeah, I had a question that 
anyway, the, the issue came up, Joseph Goldstein, a meditation teacher who <coughs> knows about psychology, and a psychologist, I forget whose name, who has studied meditation and done it. And the issue came up about dealing with difficult feelings. And there was a wonderful answer about anger, and Joseph Goldstein called it a radical approach to anger, mm -hmm. which was instead of just feeling it or expressing it wildly, it was a skillful way, and it had to do with um, a group of people that couldn't do metta and send love to the terrorists after 9-11, but they could wish for less hate. And they found the shift. This was at some retreat at IMS, and people reacted and couldn't, couldn't send loving kindness, but they could pray for less hate on the part of the terrorists. And it was, he called it a radical approach to anger. It was really beautiful. But then when the issue of sadness came up, there was no clear, delightful approach to sitting with sadness. And they talked about a meditation teacher from Burma, I think, who immersed students in it and just said, be, be in your sadness. And the person would sob and really have a cathartic experience and it would shift. And Joseph said that he would go much more gently around it and that it depended on the teacher's approach and mm -hmm. what they assessed with the sitter, a person. But I, it wasn't clear, there was no clear answer to how to sit with profound sadness. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about sitting with it when it feels like it doesn't shift. Yeah, well, that's where, you know, what I was saying before is skillful means if your mindfulness is strong, you can be with the sadness, but then when the sadness starts taking over or stronger than the mindfulness, then you have, you, one of the options you have is you can consciously choose to let it go or, or, to, or to take a break from it and then do something else and then get more mindfulness and then go back to it. But it's tricky because if you're doing it in order to get rid of it, it's, it's loaded. And so to me, sometimes it's just realizing that, okay, I'm going to look at it and, and, and maybe get to the point where I see how it arises and then when it gets in, whether or not my thinking and getting lost in a story is, is creating more of the same. So it varies in situation, but basically the bottom line is be mindful of it, understand how it affects you, and then you can choose your response to it, whether you want to work with it, if you're on a long retreat, or if you're in daily life and you got to get up and go to work. I wouldn't suggest being in it too long, then going to work with the anger kind of around you because it's probably going to come out sideways. So it's an, an idea of just feeling it in your body, just dealing with it as a bare sensation, you know, whether it's, you know, pulling, twisting, whatever it is, and just deal with it that way. And because and I have dealt with stuff like that, it gets lodged in your body, and sometimes you might even consider doing body work or some other modality, but the, the fact of the matter is that there's a way of acknowledging that it's there and being with it. Part of the issue is we don't accept that it's there and we're trying to get rid of it. And that's, that creates a, a energy in and of itself. So it's really about learning how to accept it and be okay with not liking it. And then, and then moving from there. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. um, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in a state of depression in which you're magnifying 
sins and worthlessness, that's imaginary. You know, that, that is something that you, you, know, you want to get out of. But I mean, the, the, the only thing, I mean, the thing that I admire about you is that you seem to have been able in your life to um, really face things and travel through them and have evolved to a point um, at which you have a lot of control over do I, um, shall I stay with the sadness or you know, maybe I have to go to work so I can, but not all of us have that control yet. I mean, that's I suppose what we're mm -hmm. towards in meditation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've just come back to it after a long time. And I can't even keep myself from falling asleep when I'm sitting. So I'm not in a highly evolved state. You, you, you know, I understand, but, but you presuppose a level of control that. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that at all. Okay. I'm saying that uh, it's not about control. It's about allowing things to be as they are. And I can tell you, even uh, as long as I've been practicing, the more I, the more I practice, the more I realize that it's a lot simpler than I made it all these years. I do just sit back and, and just feel whatever's there. It's not just feeling it. There's other things that are going on that are feeding it. And so if you have sadness, and, and once again, well, this is a different kind of sadness. Well, yeah, it's a different cause, but it's still sadness. And your mind, if you, if you look at the text, it talks about uh, four foundations of mindfulness. There's mindfulness and mind states. Okay, so there's sadness there. So you... You experience the sadness. You, you, you try to get to a point where you see how it arises and passes away. You, you do the other part of the practice, which is right effort, which means you develop the skill, whatever the emotion is, the how to, allow, to bring up another emotion. Now, it, it, and so to say that people have to be evolved to do this, I, I don't agree with that. I think that it's a skill like any other skill that you develop where you understand this is how I have to deal with, 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 with sadness. This is how I have to deal with, with anger. So you understand that if you, for instance, I don't care what it is. If you're sitting and the emotion, you're experiencing emotion, where is it in your body? So you put it on a physical level in your body and then you relate to it as a sensation. So if it's hot, if it's burning, twisting, whatever it's doing, and then you start exploring the sensations and the movement of the sensations, and you just breathe with it and you just be with it, that changes your relationship because part of the problem is that we don't know we're doing these other things that are creating this feeling of not being in control. And I'm not saying you have to be in control, but once you accept it's in your body and you just let it be there and don't try to change it because if you watch it, you'll see that even though you're trying to be with it, you're trying to get rid of it most of the time. And, or you're only doing it in order to get rid of it. And that little thing, it's just like, well, why don't you go relax? Well, the more you try to relax, the, the more unrelaxed you're going to be. But if you allow the relaxation to be here, and this is where the, the skill of getting out of the way and allowing the relaxation or allowing the thing to come and go. That's the challenge because if we look close, we have not given up control. We kind of say we do, but there's more clinging, there's more grasping there. And so to the degree that we learn gradually how to step back more and more and start over again and allow it to just happen, then over a period of time, you, you'll be able to do that. Now for myself, when I first started sitting, you have to understand my first experience doing this, 
I sat down and everybody was talking about experience and I had no idea what they were talking about. <coughs> but because of my warrior attitude, I kept doing it until I got to a point where I, I, I could really find my breath and I could actually be there. But there were retreats in this building where I had to say, time out, we're here to do a retreat. This thing has got to, you know, we got to put this on the back burner. And let's just focus on just breathing in and breathing out. Let's keep it real simple. Or, you know, I talked to my teacher, do walking meditation. The teachers can help you with this because they've been there before. And so everybody's different. But sometimes people come in with this selfing about, yeah, but mine's different. Mine's, you don't really understand. So, so once again, as we talk about perception, sometimes if you see yourself saying, yeah, but mine is different or I'm not as evolved as you, right there there's doubt. So we need to deal with that doubt because that doubt gets in a way where it will stop you from even putting the effort forth. And you see this more in sports, uh, specifically where people withhold or withdraw their energy, then wonder why they can't do what they're supposed to be doing. Well, because you decided you can't do it. Instead of saying, no, I'm going to bring more energy, more mindfulness, and, and, and see and keep changing based on the information I'm getting back. And so if you see yourself getting more tense, then maybe your approach has to change. Or maybe part of it is, like I said about the perception, sometimes we perceive things in a way where it keeps us where we are. And so if you perceive things as not changing, even though it's changing, but because you've already um, uh, created some belief systems that only allow certain information in, uh, you can't see what's outside of the box. It's like I say, okay, you watch TV. I use this lady, she likes TV, so I'm going to use TV. You, you, have, you watch Channel 5, and you're locked on Channel 5, but the weather's on Channel 7. So as long as you stay on Channel 5, you're not going to see what's on Channel 7. So that's why I keep saying we got to go beyond our comfort zone. we got to open up. we got to look at things differently. we got to approach things differently. Because if we keep approaching things the same way, uh, then maybe we'll keep getting the same results. So it's an, an understanding that there has to be a way of relating to things in a fresh and new way and realizing that our conditioning is keeping us on some level in. But having said that, it may take a while before it happens because the Buddha said some people, uh, it's a gradual practice with, with less suffering and some people it's a gradual practice with a lot of suffering. Some people it's, it's a quick, you know, quick results with no suffering or quick results with a lot of suffering. There's all kinds of ways and really it comes down to getting the mind out of the way and just, just be doing the best we can do today and being okay with that. But uh, I, I'm challenging you on this idea that you have to be involved to do this. Because how did I get to here? Because I, I got here because the more mindful you are, the more you set up mindfulness for the next moment. So it's kind of rich get richer. So the more you do this, the more it becomes easy. And then you change your conditioning from reacting to being proactive in choosing your response. And so it's a, it, it, this is what the practice does. It's like lifting weights. The more you practice being mindful, the more mindful you'll be. And there's tremendous degrees in it. So it's not like you hit this and you've arrived. Well, it's different levels. And some days you're gonna, it's going to be great. And some days you're not going to have any mindfulness. But if, but if you continue to do it anyway, you will find that you'll develop the ability to have more control over it. Does that make sense? 
And once again, I'm going to tell you, see for yourself. Don't take my word for it, but check it out. But if you see yourself uh, with this tension, that's usually telling you there's some selfing in there somewhere. So I think we're supposed to stop, right? It's about quarter past. Anybody? Last questions? I really, yes. So that's really none of your business. You don't say, oh, all right, I'll let you have. No, 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 no. But you, you heard what I said? I'll yield. To the, I know. But, but, but why, why is there being jealous of you bothering you? Because they're mean. Oh, okay. You have an opinion about them being mean. Okay, so, okay, so but can you control them? Or why are you doing it? Are you doing it to, to get them pissed off? Or are you doing it because you want to do it? Okay, so then, then it's nothing personal, is it? Okay, but by them... And I don't know that an explanation would say it's not personal, right? Yeah, but, but once again, you can't control them. You can control you. Now, you can ask them why are you jealous. You think they're going to tell you? No. <laughs> <laughs> are, they, are these females or males? Females. I knew that. <laughs> I work with females all the time, and they are the... I can't, now I know men aren't nice to women sometimes, but women to women, from my experience, devastating. Devastating. I tell you, the first time I worked with a women's team, I had to go home and sleep afterwards because they wore me out. (laughs) Wore wore me out because it's this hidden aggression and and all of this other stuff, and it's it's covert, you know. And I have eight sisters, so it's not like I'm not used to being around women. But I'm just telling you, when they decide that they don't like, like if they decide they want to make your life miserable, yeah. <laughs> it's not direct. That's what's confusing. It's not what? It's not direct. You said it's. Well, overt. of course, that's what I'm saying. Oh no, I like you, and they and they're stabbing you in the back. No, you're my friend. You're fine. You know, I like you. You know, you're all right. Yeah. And so what I'm saying to you is, if you know that they're like that, then you need to not be around them. Now, if you're stuck being around them, then you've got to figure out how you're going to do that. Now, see, this is the thing about teams, because I say to my uh, student-athletes, we don't pick our siblings and we don't pick our teammates. They kind of happen. And so you have to figure out a way uh, to, to coexist. And, and their job might be to make your life miserable. And the more you let them know it bothers you, they're going to do it. And so that's where I said a lot of times, because I work with this guy, and being a Red Sox fan, uh, he used to, uh, there was one Red Sox player, Jim Rice. He used to dog Jim Rice, talk about him like a dog. And Jim Rice was one of the few African-Americans on the team. And the reason he dogged him because he knew it pissed me off. It was like he pushed a button, oh, George jumps. And so once I stopped jumping, he stopped doing it. Because I said, oh, that's nice. That's great. You got any other good news? You know, and I just didn't let it bother me. And once it didn't, you know, then he couldn't control me. Because some people like having that power. Even though it's destructive, they like having that ability to push a button. Of course, usually your loved ones know your good buttons, and they know how to do it, you know, with, with, with regularity or whatever. But that's another subject. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we should probably end uh, with a few moments of sitting. I really appreciate your, your energy and your questions. It's been great. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.